You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, December the 14th. Not that cold here in TW11 this morning, but grey and a little damp as people queue around the block in an urgent rush to get their boosters to immunise them further against this rapid spread of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Clearly, the spread and the rise is now exponential, particularly in southeastern parts of the United Kingdom. And with that in mind, you'd have to think there's a strong possibility that this could well start to affect major sporting events. David Armstrong from the Racecourse Association said on this podcast last week that if further social distancing regulations come into force, then that would naturally have an impact on big events around Christmas and into the new year. And it'll be one of those questions I'll be posing to Ascot's Director of Public Affairs and Racing, Nick Smith, later in the programme when he talks to me about Ascot's bold new prize money scheme for 2022 and also important changes to one of their key fixtures, the Shergar Cup. That's all to come, as is a chat with veteran and now retired racing journalist, Jeff Lester, who's recently published his memoirs about 34 years as a writer on the sporting life. But no surprise that once again, Brani Frost dominates the news agenda. Why so today? Because she has told her story exclusively to Phil Thomas in The Sun. I'm joined today by newsboy from the Daily Mirror, uh, David Yates, who followed every step of the Robbie Dunn hearing over the last couple of weeks. And we haven't spoken to him since the conclusion of that hearing. Um, what are the key headlines as to what Bryony has told Phil Thomas in The Sun today, Dave? Yeah, there are several of them. Um, the first, Nick, is is Bryony Frost's uh, account of, of how this started and, and how she uh, came to report it. She says, uh, the world I was in was like, take it on the chin, brush it under the carpet, it will be okay in time. But it was increasing in momentum and getting worse, she says, of the bullying uh, from Robbie Dunn. I'd work, I'd race, I'd come back and on to the next one. Uh, There were times I thought life shouldn't be just about day-to-day living. My last resort was taking it to the BHA. I knew it was never going to stop, but I had to give something a go because it was getting worse. I I thought arguably the most interesting uh, piece of of all the ones that have uh, been released, I think it's in uh, three main uh, hits, uh, this uh, this interview with Phil Thomas and I thought one of the most interesting if not the most interesting was um, her recollection of of coming back to the winner's enclosure at Sandown after winning the, the Tingle Creek uh, on Grenatine the when you consider that the previous Wednesday she'd given her quite tearful testimony uh, to uh, at the British Horse Racing Authority to uh, the hearing and anyone who was at Sandown will I think remember that uh, the reception that she got for a very long time and when you consider what she'd been through it's interesting to see how she recalls that she says uh, that was the moment I felt I was right I wasn't on my own. Uh, that support from the racing public, they have been like a mass family. I really, fe- I, 
I felt the really personal thumbs up. You're doing ace. Keep kicking. Stay where you are. I had never felt it on such a level. Every eye contact at Sandown I made, every cheer really hit me. That was one point when I think it, it hit home to everybody, uh, the, the popularity that Bryony Frost has among the racing public. And clearly from this interview with Phil Thomas, it, it, was, a, it was a huge moment for her as well. There's talk of, of a rapprochement of sorts, of some, some fence mending uh, on the part of some of Brani's weighing room colleagues. That I found quite an interesting section. When she gave her testimony, testimony she talks about uh, that sense of isolation that by standing up and taking the case uh, to the BHA, that this would inevitably uh, involve a measure of rejection uh, from elements of the weighing room. But yeah, she's been saying again in this uh, this Phil Thomas interview that uh, there are lots of really good people inside uh, I in the weighing room. Uh, I've already been made to feel I'm part of the weighing room. Uh, they do want me to sit down and have a cup of tea with them. I haven't felt that for some time. So uh, according to the interview, there are at least some uh, beginnings of uh, a rapprochement there. And obviously, this is a uh, we we hope that that will continue because up until well e even now there are there are still uh, shots being fired in opposite directions and the sooner that the rapprochement rapprochement begins and that uh, racing can build to together towards uh, different solutions then obviously it's that that's for the uh, for the well-being of the sport. And we spoke yesterday, Lydia and I, quite extensively about the, the, the PJA, Professional Jockeys Association's, more conciliatory approach. Uh, but that's going to have to, to work a little harder, isn't it, if, if Brownie Frost is going to come on board as a, as a fully emotionally signed up member to that organisation at any rate. The, the feeling from this interview is that, uh, that the PJA uh, wasn't neutral. Now, that's obviously... Uh, a claim that the Professional Jockeys Association uh, would contest. Uh, in, in her interview, Bryony Frost says, uh, of the PJA, they weren't there for me and their system isn't good enough. I felt like an inconvenience. Uh, there was no care or interest from them, even when it reached the hearing. They just basically said that time would fix it. They wanted to ignore it until it went away. I don't feel they saw what I was going through as being as serious as it was. So um, we, we know that from uh, Thursday there was a PJA statement which attracted lots of attention, which, uh, which used the phrase that uh, Bryony felt she was bullied. I, I, I think rightly given that the independent judicial panel had found that the charges of bullying had been proved on a balance of probabilities, I think it's it's right that they amended that statement to was being bullied. Uh, but yeah, it seems like the the um, the olive branch uh, between Bryony Frost and the, the west the, the the rest of the weighing room. Um, it seems that that at least has started. But we'll have to see as to how things work out with the PJA. It, it, initially, it seems there's. Uh, still a lot of work still to be done. Dave, we haven't spoken on this podcast uh, since the, the verdict, since the, since the conclusion of the hearing. Were there any small bits that you, you wanted to touch upon? 
There, there were a couple of uh, a bits. I, I'm 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 very keen to to hear the the written reasons, Nick, when they come out. I mean, I got I I, I placed a lot of importance on on that victim focused approach that was uh, that Chris Watts, the 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 investigator, the the um, prime investigator who who left his post in September at the BHA. Um, I felt that was really very telling and potentially injurious uh, to the BHA's case. It didn't play out like that. And I'll be very interested to see in the written reasons how the judicial panel viewed that, because my my understanding of uh, Chris Watts's brief is was that he would gather all relevant information and then make a decision from there and not pick and choose. The statement after the um, the decision had been reached from Brian Barker came in two parts. It was first essentially to announce uh, the verdict and then after uh, pleas from both the, the BHA and Robbie Dunn's uh, barristers, the panel retired and came out and gave further reasoning uh, for the sentencing. Um, in the first... Uh, of Brian Barker's addresses. He said that we, we find that the words used on September the 3rd, this was at Southall uh, after the race in which Killian's well was killed, uh, were as a promise to cause real harm over and above the usual jockey mantra of murdering. I, I'm, I'm quite interested to read in the written reasons that if they really found that a, a jockey promised and intended as a threat to cause real harm, which would involve, of course, potential serious injury to Bryony Frost, Bryony Frost's horse, in this individual case, Robbie Dunn and Robbie Dunn's horse. I would have thought that if that's the conclusion that they came to, then 15 plus three in terms of months as a punishment would actually be pretty lenient. I would have thought any jockey uh, capable of making that threat and meaning it uh, was was probably um, unworthy of of having a license in future. But I, I'm I'm talking in a, a more general sense rather than the specific one. As I say, I'd be very interested to see quite uh, what the wording uh, surrounding that was. And just uh, the the piece from the the PJA, the the statement they made on behalf of women of the women of some of the women jockeys. I thought that again there was a lot of flack on social media uh, fired at the women jockeys behind that statement uh, that it was suggested that they didn't have the courage to put their names to it and I, I thought that was extremely unfair I think that if you if you ride half ton thoroughbreds over obstacles then uh, the one word that you don't deserve to be called is a coward and i think it was a perfectly reasonable uh, explanation that we we just don't want to receive pelters after pelters on social media uh, for uh, giving our identities and, and pushing them uh, to these views just two final things i thought that um of all the stuff that i've read since last Thursday afternoon, there were two standouts. One was a letter from Louise Cox uh, that you can see the letters on the Racing Post website uh, that talks about viewing this or not viewing it in a binary way. Um, and I thought that was an extremely good letter. And um, finally, uh, the journalist Nancy Von Short, who works in another 
male-dominated sport, that of, of motorsport. She's written a piece uh, which is entitled Frost v. Dunn, The Awkward Truth. I thought this was a really um, empathetic piece looking at, at, at both parties uh, in this issue. And there's some, there's some criticism for, uh, for the BHA. There's probably a bit for the, the PJA as well. Um, her Twitter handle is at not now nancy if you haven't read that now uh, before now then i suggest you do so because that's a very good piece but uh, beyond that i just hope that uh, before too long we will we will start uh, to move forward with this and the 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 recriminations will start to fade well you wait a year for a, a great prize money announcement to come along and then you get two in the space of a day it was the jockey club yesterday it's Ascot today I'm delighted to say that the director of uh, racing and public affairs at the Royal Racecourse Nick Smith joins me now uh, as he quite frequently does on this podcast uh, but with some some really positive news today Nick yeah absolutely Nick and you're right following the jockey club yesterday we, we've just announced that we're putting two million pounds on prize money compared uh, like the Jockey Club did to 2019, which was the last year pre-pandemic. So we're over £15 million. We're in the 8.5 million region for Royal Ascot. We'll have our first £2 million uh, Royal Ascot race day on the Tuesday and a couple of two, a couple of million pound races in the um, Prince of Wales' stakes and, the, uh, and, and the, what will now be the Platinum Jubilee stakes. Uh, Lydia and I were making the point yesterday, and, and it's something that she's talked about you know, significantly in her role on the pattern, that... Yes, it's great to have prize money increases, but there are some people who want prize money at the bottom end. Ascot doesn't really have that big a bottom end, to be honest. It has a, a very, very sharp top end. It's important in terms of racing's global appeal to have those those marquee races really well endowed. Is that something that you have prioritised? Well, well, there are two points there. I mean, the first one is that obviously we don't operate at the bottom end in inverted commas, but we all have races that, that are the bottom end for our own programme. And for Ascot, our, our minimum value for jumping will be 10,000. 10, and our minimum value for flat racing will be 15,000, apart from the odd national hunt flat racing and races like that. And at the Royal Meeting, our minimum value will be £100,000 per race. But as you rightly say, you know our job is to protect the pattern, to promote international racing, uh, whether that's bringing horses from overseas to run at Royal Ascot and the King George, or whether that's um, making sure that our, our own top horses remain targeting those meetings the, the two things are interlinked that's our role um, uh, and um, i'm on the pattern committee the flat pattern committee with lydia uh, and you know we're both absolutely committed to making sure that we turn the boat around as much as we can in terms of the the exodus of top class horses to uh, either be trained in other continents or even as, as we're seeing now to be uh, more in France and Ireland. I mean, we want to see horses travel to France and Ireland just as we want horses from France and Ireland to travel to us, but we want to maintain the balance. Nick, the Shergar Cup, the sort of international jockeys challenge, is now a is now a firmly established fixture at Ascot. You've made some subtle tweaks to it this year. Why? Well, we've increased the the number of races from six to eight, uh, increased prize money for the existing races, um, and put in two new fifty thousand pound races. So that's going to be a half a million pound race day as well. And the key thing there again is, you know, it, it needs to move on. Uh, it's a very popular day, but we want to maintain the standard of the horses that we we can bring in. Uh, a, a lot these days is, is if you like self help through betting turnover and how you can 
frame your races to to perform better in in all those regions, whether that's an international betting opportunity like Whirlpool, or whether it's uh, domestic streaming or thing or, or or even betting shops. So we've done a lot of work to, to reframe those races to make them as competitive as they can. We've also put in a um, a twenty five thousand pound stable start stable bonus, which will be for trainer and the stable staff for both Shogar Cup Day and indeed King George Day. And we've tried to make King George Day as high a quality race day as we possibly can. Um, so we've moved um, the Valiant Stakes from the Friday to the Saturday, the Group 3 for Phillies. Um, and we've also moved the, the competitive five-fernal handicap from the Friday to the Saturday uh, in, in order again to drive betting turner and quality on that day. And that is a whirlpool day. And, and for that day to, to, to maximise its potential, it has to have a programme like that. Okay, I would talk about the Whirlpool, talk about international interest. I know you're always keen to get horses from uh, Europe, but also from further afield. Uh, and uh, your Australian trainer, Chris Waller, was suggesting that one or two of his big guns could come to Europe next year, and I'm pretty sure he means it as well. That must excite you, the idea that, uh, of Australia getting involved in Royal Ascot again. It, it really does, yes. I mean, I mean, Chris certainly has the intention, and I think we'll, we all just have to brush the last two years under the carpet a little bit in, in terms of what's happened on international racing, especially on these shores. Um, but uh, you know, Chris is, Chris's interest is obviously very genuine. Uh, his star horse, Nature, Nature Strip, is arguably potentially the best the best sprinter in the world, um, and uh, it would be very interesting and very pleasing to have 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 him back. Uh, he's also obviously got the Melbourne Cup winner, very elegant. Uh, whether that's a Royal Ascot horse or a horse more suited to a, to a race like the Jumon International into the Arc, we'll see. But obviously. Clearly, we'll be um, working hard to, to see whether we can bring that horse over for either the Prince of Wales Estates or the King George. And obviously, the reason why we've been you know, hidebound by restrictions the last couple of years is because we're in the middle of a, the pandemic. We're at a, at a spike at the moment with the Omicron variant rampaging through uh, the UK. Uh, how are you anticipating well, even the next few days going, given that you've got a big fixture this weekend? Yes, I mean, I mean, very much like through the whole pandemic, and it, it has been going on for some time now, one form or another. It, it's just a question of, of of working with the advice that we get from government, and you know, the RCA is doing a fantastic job for us with the BHA on 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 leading on what those uh, what those those um, instructions actually are. At the moment, it's uh, it's, it's certain to be um, uh, COVID passports uh, and or well, or a lateral flow test if you're unable to produce a, a double vaccination COVID passport. Um, and equally, um, uh, face masks uh, on site, at least inside, are expected to be mandatory, obviously not whilst eating, but whilst walking about, potentially in the parade ring too. Um, so we're just watching this space and, and, um, and, uh, look, and still looking forward very much to the weekend. It's, you know, the, 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 the Howden Longwalk Hurdle, first, first year of Howden taking over this meeting, our new commercial partner. It's exciting. Uh, you know, the Longwalk is shaping up into an absolute cracker. Um, you know, brilliant to see Nicky confirming three horses to run in the race, including Champ, the exciting Champ. Um, you know, some favourites like Time Hill, Paisley Park. Um, you know, highlighting what's going to be a cracking card. Uh, Nick Smith there from Ascot. Feels slightly Groundhog Day today. Um, uh, starting again with the with the Frost story, and then a, a story about uh, prize money. But again, rather as yesterday with Nevin Truesdale, there, there's quite a lot of. Uh, stuff in, in Nick Smith's interview there that's that's worth touching on on Dave. I mean the the evolving COVID situation. I mean is clearly a worry, but as he said, if you're a racecourse, you've just got to you've just got to wait and see, haven't you? Well, yeah, you have. There's 
there's so much of an element of, of Groundhog Day and, and the, the COVID-19 situation. You know, we're going back months and months, well, beyond a year now, aren't we, to uh, waiting to see if, uh, as a result of the Omicron variant, whether there will be uh, an impact on crowds and and you know we're on the 14th of december today it's 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 feared boris johnson yesterday i think on three separate occasions uh, refused to rule out further measures so yeah we're we're sitting and and waiting we all hope that uh, that we can enjoy not only a, a a relatively normal christmas but certainly in our in our family lives but also uh, one on the race course as well which is obviously a, a, a big uh, a big money maker for race courses and it's a it's a period that we'll all enjoy so i suppose we'll just have to learn more over over the next few days but let's hope that we can stay at least close to where we are now yeah, I suppose the key the key worries imminently for for racing would be Kempton on on Boxing Day and Chepstow on the twenty seventh and um, I ask it this weekend probably comes comes soon enough but Kempton Chepstow Cheltenham on New Year's Day and if if we ramp up beyond Plan B then as David Armstrong the RCA chief executive points out on this podcast last week then increased social distancing measures will necessitate a curb on crowds and that's before we take into account what race courses might do if they're having to recruit lots of staff to police gates uh, and that sort of um, staffing cost they might consider to be not worth it. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I think that you're right about uh, Ascot this weekend. I think that that whatever uh, may or may not happen before Christmas, I think this weekend will will probably be okay. But as you say, then when we get to the other side of Christmas, uh, the Boxing Day program, Chepstow, and and going towards the New Year. Yeah, that's an interesting one uh, with regard to some of the meetings, whether whether there will be uh, a, a policy on the part of some tracks where they just think, well, this isn't really cost effective to, um, to put in place uh, a, a system to deal with, with the new restrictions. We're just going to make uh, racing behind closed doors. That would be a uh, that that would be a real shame. But you know, it it was interesting yesterday that that the prime minister was um, he, he was asked on three occasions whether uh, he could rule out further uh, restrictions before Christmas, and you know he he pointedly distanced himself uh, from that. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that we should be taking anything for granted either. And I, I really say that with heavy heart. A little word on, on the big race itself this weekend, the long walk hurdle. Paisley Park going for a third victory in the race, though less credentialed um, for, for a third victory than he has been in the past. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a, a, a crossroads, I think, for Paisley Park. The interesting thing with this horse is that I felt that after... Paisley Park was third in the long distance hurdle at Newbury. That afterwards, Emma Lavelle said, we'll, we'll give him another try over hurdles at Ascot. We, he deserves that, a race that he's won twice before. And then I think they will think about steeplechasing. Now, by the time they do that, we'll be into 2022 and Paisley Park will be 10 years old. Um, so that. He's at a crossroads, but he's at a, a crossroads where he's about to turn into double figures. It's it's an interesting race, isn't it, Nick? Uh, quite apart from uh, the fate of Paisley Park, 
We've got Time Hill in there, of course, who was beaten at Auteuil uh, at the start of November. And the Nicky Henderson trio, also interesting in their own way. On the blind side, Champ, of course, winner of the Ascot Hurdle and the Cesarevich uh, for Thurlow Thoroughbreds and the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. And also Champ, who's arguably the most interesting of the, th- of the three in terms of... Uh, Headlines in that he was a 13 to 2 shot when he was pulled up in the Cheltenham Gold Cup last March. He was, uh, he, I think, he was until recently seen as the uh, the most likely UK based winner of Chasing's Blue Ribbon. He's had a back operation uh, since that disappointment, and they had the option of going to the Savills Chase over fences, of course, at Leopardstown uh, after Christmas, but they've decided to come here and give him a spin over hurdles. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. He's also nine years old. So uh, if it doesn't happen for Champ and Paisley Park this season, then in the terms of a normal uh, jumper's career, then we would think that they're dare I say it, past their zenith when we go into the next campaign. Well, I guess we like to think we have a good time in the press room now. I suspect a couple of decades ago, it might have been more fun. Certainly that looks to have been the case if you flick through the memoirs of Sporting Life ex-chief reporter Jeff Lester. They're entitled The Time of My Life. They chart his 34-year um, rise from T-Boy to that position as chief reporter. And Jeff joins me now. Jeff, what a journey it was. It was a journey. It's been a great journey. Um, um, I suppose I, I've always always loved racing. I was bitten by the bug as a 12-year-old. My dad took me to Kempton Park on Easter Saturday in 1960. And, um, I, you know, I had so much fun that day. We backed four winners. We saw Prince Honolulu, the colourful headdress flowing around and packed bank holiday crowd in those days at Kempton, not not these days on the, on the flat. And, um, uh, you know, we, as I say, it, I think it's so the season, it really, for me to make the sport of kings my career. And so, how did you get in? What was the what was the way in? Because not not easy, I wouldn't have thought. Not at all. Um, I, I, that night, I, I wrote to Peter O'Sullivan, whose reply was hugely encouraging, and he advised me to apply to the Sporting Life, try and get in as a seven pound claimer, really, and get in on the bottom rung. But uh, my careers officer at school, Nick, wasn't impressed, and uh, she um, she dismissed my ambition as pie in the sky. She was very, very happy to give me the relevant literature on journalism, but she said that uh, without a university degree, um, in her words. The only chance you have of seeing Fleet Street is on a monopoly board. <laughs> so I thought it was a, for a young lad of just 15 then, I think that was a bit of a kick in the groin. So when I got home that night, there was a letter waiting for me from the Sporting Life offering me a job as that office juniors. So um, um, turn the clock forward to 1998 when I got that coveted um, Racing Journalist Year Award. I think you've got about five of them, haven't you? And uh, probably more than that, actually. Nick, probably doing a disservice. Um, I'd have loved to have found that woman and dragged her. Sadly, I couldn't drag her to the lunch and uh, insist she had a double portion of humble pie. Well, the careers officer was was proved wrong, as you as you say, and uh, you went on to have a, a glorious career at the sporting life. Just tell me what what the sporting life was like in those early days. Give me a flavour of sort of office life and racecourse life when you first started. Yeah, I suppose that, um, it was rather strange, really. I mean, um, you know, it, it, it was obviously no racing poster around until 1986, and the Sporting Chronicle was on, dying on its feet, so we were we were on, on our own, really, like the post is now. So um, it was rather strange, but uh, 
there was no no there was no Sunday racing in those days. No no uh, no travelling abroad or anything. In fact, it was when the post came along in '86 that uh, really opened opened the door for me. Really, because um, it, it, you know we decided if we were going to if we were going to compete with the post, we had to we had to um, spread our ambitions and, um, and and obviously the post went everywhere. The Breeders' Cup, Dubai World Cup, and um, yeah, my passport came up and I did 30 pre de Triumphs triumphs of the, obviously the Breeders and the Dubai. Um, a couple of Melbourne Cups got thrown out of one, but uh, that's in the book, so you can find out about that. And um, it's uh, it's just been one long happy career. And Jeff, if if you were if if somebody came to you now and and they were eighteen like as you were when you wanted to get into racing and said oh, I I want to be a, I want to be a racing journalist, would would you encourage them with the with the same sort of fervor? Well, I would do. Yeah, I think if these days if you want to do something, uh, people will say. Um, if you if you if you know if if you've got a huge ambition, just go for it. Whatever, don't get, don't let people turn you down and, and dissuade you. But I, I do think obviously it's totally different now. In those days, we just about had a typewriter. Nowadays, they're all on computers and everything like that. It's totally different. Um, everybody's in the press room tapping away. We've got things like podcasts and and uh, every, everyone's on websites. And it's you know it's, then days we we just had five. Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, Sunday, Monday to Saturday, rather, the life came out. Sundays we had off. Um, it was just totally different. But you know, if you if you if you can get in the get in at the bottom, you can work up, and uh, that's the way I did. Look, me, I think three of my editors started right at the bottom. They were they were office juniors at the life, and uh, they all made it to uh, the top. Jeff, thanks so much for talking to me. Great, last final one. It's thirteen ninety nine, but uh, Weatherby's <laughs> published it, Nick, and it's. Uh, for Ascot this weekend, it'd be a tenner. The Time of My Life by Jeff Lester. Well, thanks to Jeff, to Nick Smith earlier in the show as well. To all my guests today, Dave Yates is one of them and he has a tip for you. Yeah, we're going to Wincanton, Nick, the one thirty race and it's number four, Earth Company. Uh, this horse was successful at Taunton at the end of last month in a novice hurdle comes in handicaps here off a mark of 124 i hope that's a rating that will prove within range 130 race at wincanton section number four earth company dave thank you very much thank you very much for listening that was tuesday the 14th of december we'll be back to do it again tomorrow you've been listening to nick luck daily Brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.